Mm. Wow. They've been waiting. Man, Welcome it's been a minute. Carl. It's been a minute. <laughs> What's that? I said it's been a minute. I feel like it's been a few weeks. It has. Oh, this is the crowd's even more excited. Yeah, they're more amped up. Wow, they sound just like they sounded the other time. Yeah. Welcome to the Carl Landry Record Club, a music podcast from the rights of Ricky Sanchez. I am Spike, along with Mootlu. How are you, friend? Good, good. Hanging in there. Uh, excited for this, you know, spring is right around the corner. It is. Feeling well, energized. you know. So we're up here in the Northeast. I don't know where you're listening to this. It has been a mild winter, but the minute that you think it's over is the minute that we will get hit with the March two and a half foot snowstorm. Yeah. yeah. You know, just it's like- inevitable. <laughs> yeah, ruining everything. If we're lucky, maybe it becomes an ice storm, which makes it even harder, you know, so I'm sure we'll get that. But we are, it's Feb 19. We're, we're in the home stretch here, but that's, you can't get comfortable. You can't. It's get also like a manic thing going on with the weather, where it's like, out to the forecast, and uh, it's like forty-five one day, it jumps to seventy the next day, and then it's like thirty-seven with possible snow yes. two days later. It's like yeah. it can't make up its mind. Yeah, it's That's great. It great for my health. The, yeah. uh, your body always loves when the temperature goes up and down like that, especially as you get older. It's the best. It's I wonderful. Love it. Wonderful. We are a music appreciation podcast. We talk about two albums generally every time. And the goal is to turn each other on to new music, to turn you on to new music the old fashioned way by recommending it to other people. Um, you know, like, uh, you know, and, and the thing is, it's not just with music. If you see an advertisement for a restaurant or something or hear an advertisement for a restaurant, there's a chance you might go. But if your friend tells you this restaurant right. is excellent, the odds of you going far more so obviously you can be suggested music online by your app and you are it's possible that you will check it but imagine if one of us or a friend said go check it out that's what's important that's what we like to do so we're doing two albums this oh by the way if you want to suggest an album a few ways to do it if you're listening on spotify which people have been doing more often in in terms of suggesting right under the pod you can see it says hey what album should we do next you could do it there you can do it in the apple podcast reviews leave us a five-star review and they get preference and and put it in there or you can just go to carlandryrecordclub.com there's an email link to suggest an album right there along with a list that I update, I would say every six weeks or so of all the albums. We have most of the albums on the album review list. So if you want to go to a specific episode that, cause we found that uh, people like to listen to episodes of albums that they like to hear other people talk about them. So you can go through and see which albums we've done and perhaps go to one of the, uh, one of the episodes there. So we're doing two albums on this episode as we always almost do listener album is Rainbow Kitten Surprises 7 Plus Mary, which came out in 2013 from Spotify user Nick, who says 7 Plus Mary by Rainbow Kitten Surprise, which is very short, is all he said. But, uh, <laughs> but it's but a he, great name. It's a great band name. So. A, absolutely. And and this is, I, I'm pretty sure Nick has suggested this a few times, so I'm glad we finally get to it. And Mootloo's album is Ace A Go Go from John Schofield, which came out in 1998, which is the year I graduated college. Um, I, I, had graduated. To, I had to get back to the jazz guitar. Uh, yes. thing. It's kind of a series now. It's become a series. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Every once in a while we go to our, our uh, you have your... You're like your your 
core groups that you pick from. And like every once in a while, I got to pick an emo album or a hairband album. Every once in a while, you got to take like a a experimental soul record or a jazz guitar record or something. So it's definitely, I think I'm the resident jazz guy. For sure. In our our mix. Certainly out of uh, us two. That's not (laughs) a, no doubt about it. Yeah. Not a high bar to climb. (laughs) Why why don't we start with, with Nick's album? Why don't we start with rainbow kitten surprise? So sad. Hey Jesus, what you want to get from me that I can't get when I've been living singing? Hey pretty mama, hey pretty mama, don't look so sad. Much I've, I've never heard of them, but apparently a, a pretty dedicated big following. Have you had you ever heard of them? I hadn't heard of them. I guess when I listened, I immediately it reminded me of some other. Uh, I couldn't pinpoint which bands, but there's kind of a sound that's like that. In it's indie music. It's definitely indie rock. It has that indie rock appeal, mm-hmm. which could mean so many things. But it's something about the aesthetic, the recording. But it made me think of some of the indie folk bands that we've discussed. I feel like a lot of our listeners are just very dialed into that. That right. scene, and there's different different uh, branches of that scene, and it listening to it, and then finding out they sold out Red Rocks. You're like, wow. oh, yeah, really? they did, yeah. But it's that kind of music that would sell out Red Rocks. Not not like every kind of music couldn't, but there is like, you know, when Mount Joy plays Red Rocks, they do like five shows now or whatever. Wow. You, you know, <laughs> I think they do two, but you know what I mean. Like, there's a that j- indie jam sort of circuit is a very, very Red Rocks friendly, I feel like. And I think it's, there's a sing-along element mm-hmm. yes. to those bands that you're, for, and to this band. Absolutely. So this is their debut album is Seven Plus Mary, their debut LP. They are from North Carolina. Ella, the singer, and Derek, the guitar player, went to school together at Appalachian State and were writing and performing together um, and then as, uh, it's funny that the band name, which is funny, uh, I found an interview about where it came from and they were playing open, op- they're playing open mics. And it said before one open mic night, they realized they needed a name. They turned to a close friend who had just been through a tough illness. We were just like, okay, we got to sign up. Noah, what's your name? And Noah's like rainbow kitten surprise. Are you positive about that? Uh, they said, and he said, yes. And apparently he was on like, uh, not lithium. He was on some like enormous painkiller. The guy that suggested the band because he was just in this car accident. So he was drugged up, said rainbow kitten surprise. And they, they went with it. I'm amazed that that stuck. I mean, sometimes, you know, there's the initial ideas for a band name and, you know, sometimes you kind of revamp and revisit, but they, they stuck with that. (laughs) Well, you know, sometimes you gotta, you gotta, if you, if you're going to pick the weird thing, stick to it and it can become your calling card. Much, much like, uh, writes Ricky Sanchez was for us. Absolutely. I, I will say the first five years we did the podcast and we used to complain every, all the time that people wouldn't say the name of the podcast and people were like, well, it's too hard to remember. They don't know if it doesn't make any sense. You should change it. And every time somebody said we should change it, we were like, well, Absolutely not. Now it is even more likely we won't change it. So they actually filled out the band eventually with three people that lived in their dorm. Uh, So the entire band came from one dorm at Appalachian State, added three others, Jess, Charlie, and Ethan, and they put out their first EP, which was recorded in their dorm called Mary, which is 
when you look at the, uh, obviously seven plus Mary now makes sense as I believe this is seven songs plus what Mary was. I think that that makes some sense. They gained popularity playing live. They're a good live band and they released seven plus Mary on a, an imprint called split rail records, which was basically just an independent uh, label run by another student at Appalachian state. And from there, the next, the only three full lengths. This one came out in 2013. An album called RKS came out in 2015. And then in 2018, How To Friend Love Free Fall came out. Um, and in that time, like became just an enormous touring band playing all of the festivals that you would imagine they would play. You know, they played Bonnaroo. Um, they, they sold out Red Rocks on their own. I think it said in a week and a half released a live record in 2021 and then a uh, another single actually their first music since 2018 i think came out this year called work out the same time and they had played a lot of um uh, lbgtq like um what's it called like benefit stuff in over the years um and then this year ella put the following thing on their Facebook. They put a band picture out and it said, hey y'all, since the last time we've torn, we've grown a lot as, as humans and as a band, just wanted to take a moment to reintroduce ourselves, whether you're a longtime fan or just recently joined our cult. Hi everyone, I'm Ella, lead singer of Rainbow Kitten Surprise. Over the past couple of years, I've been doing some major soul searching in the pursuit of my authentic self. I'm happy to share with you that I am trans. My pronouns are she, her. I'm grateful to be able to express who I truly am and share in this moment with you. I can't wait to see all of you on the road and sing with you every night. Thank you for taking the time to read. So obviously a, a big thing for someone to do, especially when you're public and part of a, a band like that, but it does seem like the, the sort of world where it would be accepted, you know, musically uh, accepted and celebrated, which is cool for her. Yeah. I, I love that when, uh, you know, bands, they sound like this kind of band. They're so connected to their audience. Right. That as they go through, you know, life changes, as they progress, as they evolve as people that there's the it says a lot about our society, at least parts of our society, that someone who is a public figure can now feel comfortable doing that. For sure. Because uh, in the not too distant past, it, it would have been much more difficult. So it, that when I hear something like that, it makes me feel good because it makes me realize that there are at least strands of our, <laughs> our society and in the music world that uh, that are more forward thinking and willing to embrace you know, an artist making that kind of change and just on a on human, on a personal level. Yeah. Well, I mean, there've been, uh, uh, I think in the music world, a, a few instances of such things happening and I'm sure they run into resistance. A few that we've even talked about. on Large Jean uh, Grace. Uh, uh, Large Jean Grace. Yeah, of course. Uh, Ethel Kane. Now Ethel Kane didn't make the switch while, uh, while as a popular artist, but, but the, the same thing. And it seems obviously run into resistance anywhere, but it seems like in this sort of world, uh, and especially as you have fans, it is the, the uh, it is nice to have that sort of connection with your audience where it can be accepted like that. Uh, the album is like super interesting, man. Like you were talking about not being able to nail it down. I heard so many different influences in the in the in it. Like I heard Paul Simon, you know. Absolutely. Uh, a lot in there, you know, um, I heard, you know, there's the normal singer songwriter influence in the vocals. And even in some of the musicality, I feel like I heard Jeff Buckley 
in there, you know, uh, certainly with the, the, uh, the, uh, what's it called? Uh, singing voice, the, uh, the falsetto, the falsetto singing voice, which reminded me of Jeff Buckley a lot, but even like the intonation and even the way the singing happened reminded me of Jeff Buckley a little bit too. There were just so many, uh, you do hear jam bandy things. Uh, you hear like, like modest mouse at some points in there. And I think the, the thing that there's, there's a lot of like cool things about it, but the thing that sticks out to me is the way that it goes from sort of singular vocal to gang vocal in the chorus. And it's a way of singing together. Maybe you can explain this better than I can. There's some times where people sing together and it sounds like a wall, like they're all together, like Boston almost. But there's sometimes where the voices are separated just enough to, you can almost hear exactly how many people are singing. Does that make any sense to you? Uh, yes, indeed. Yeah. I, I think about that. When I think about that, I always think about the production technique because mm. there's a way to record vocals where you can kind of stack the vocals and yep. you have people kind of doubling each other yep. or it's harmonies, but it sounds produced in a way. Yeah. Or, or there's a way to do it so that it sounds like people in a room. And when you sing, when you have people singing together like that, it almost can't be too perfect. Yeah. Because if it's too perfect and too pristine, it becomes that other thing that you were referring to, where it's like the Boston thing, you know? Yep. So I think it's kind of a, it's a deliberate approach and style. And I think when you're making a record, I think it's, you have to kind of think of, like, if you want to present it in that way, you have to think of it in that way in the studio. For sure. It reminds me of the front bottoms a little bit, the way that they do their, when they sing together, there's a, a looseness to them singing together, but it, uh, but on purpose, you know? The band comes to mind. When you yes, hear the for band, sure. they had great harmonies and they, you know, Levon Helm and, and Richard Manuel and Rick Danko sounded so good together, but they were so distinctive that it was never, you could hear each personality within a group of, of vocals. It, it was interesting that the first couple of songs I actually didn't like, and I was I was like, oh, this album's going to be a bummer. I'm going to find. But there's something that happens in the third song, first class, I think it is on the album, where I feel like it just turns. And every song from that point on was super influenced. It was super interesting to me. I thought, I thought that song, First Class, I think the lyric writing in this is awesome. There's a lot of words in the album in general, but say we'll get married on a porch in Vegas. We can get hitched and have a couple kids and none of them will look at all like us. And our neighbors will all be a bit too much. And you'll live out in the desert with a man you never loved. <laughs> it's crazy because, well, I, I, I took parts of that lyric okay, and then took a few lyrics later, but it's amazing how we always key in on like, on the same thing. But yeah. that's a big moment in the album because I think that it is. It, it showcases their lyrical ability. Mm -hmm. that, that thing of being able to paint a picture for the listener, uh, they do that really well. Yeah, for sure. Uh, the, the other songs that stuck out to me, I thought Devil Like Me. What you can't out for, what you can't out for. Snow, snow, on the left, whiskey on the left. Shaking out a lot of cigarettes, miss me when you 
there was something about like the percussion and the sparse instrumentation and production that like matched the Oh no, you're it's smiling. uncanny. I'm oh, literally, okay. it's the next note down, like first class was one and the next, but I, yeah, that absolutely. <laughs> well, it matches like the, the lyrics. There's something about like the production and the sort of like, um, and the, the production of the percussion that like, there's not a lot there, but it, it seems like it is, um, there's like an ominous, uh, uh, vibe to the percussion. And, and when you hear the voices, they sort of sound like they're coming from everywhere. And then when you look at the lyrics, uh, is the devil so bad if he cries in his sleep while the earth turns and his kids learn to say, fuck you, they don't love you. Does the devil get scared if she dies in her dreams while the earth burns? She cries because she's nothing like you. Is she like you? What do you want from a devil like me? Am I like you? And those lyrics seem to match like the vibe of the production and the percussion on that. Um, yeah, and I love that you, you keyed in on the groove part of that. Yeah. I love how sparse it is. And then the hand claps are like the snare, basically. Yeah. So you sort of have like the kick that's creating the syncopation, and the hand claps are the snare. And I think it just speaks to, they they have this ability to do a less is more aesthetic, but it, it feels fully realized. It doesn't Sometimes if you go that way, it can sound almost like a demo. Mm. Uh, they somehow craft the records in such a way that they can just have a few elements and it still feels complete. It doesn't feel like it's lacking anything. For sure. And the, the last song that, that I, that I wrote down, like you, you mentioned that there were probably great sing-alongs at their shows and there are a bunch of moments, but like, that's my shit. I'm getting dilated to the back with a bad baby fighting for now they're standing in the door saying that's my shit, that's my shit, that's what everybody wants some more singing. You may be the death of me. No disrespect, babe, but that's my shit, that's my shit, that's what everybody's on the floor for. Is almost like <laughs> it's a great album ender. Yeah, is a great album ender has like I am sure the crowd sings along to that. And it's almost like like you, uh, like there's no way that a, a song that has that as the chorus would ever be a pop hit, but I bet it could be. But I bet like if you recorded this and marketed it a certain way, it could it could certainly be a pop hit the way it's written. And the lyrics in that are awesome too. So I, I thought there was, those were like three songs that were all very different, but all like, all I thought interesting and paint a picture of the album. Yeah, that it's a, such a great album closer. Now, I know it took you, you said it took a few uh, tracks to get into it. Now, I agree. The record gets better and better as you go. Mm -hmm. But I did like that first track. Believe me, I never wanted to be this way. Never wanted to be this fake. Which is a uh, fail. Yep. I think what I liked about it, well, first off, this is something that's come up in a lot of other contexts. I love single note rhythm guitar grooves. Uh, I, I always think of the meters first and foremost, mm. and this is such a different context than the meters. But uh, when you kind of are playing a, a just a single note, could be a few notes, you, you, but you're treating it, it's not like a lead, it's like a rhythm part. And there's a guitar that does that on the song Fail, the opening track. I also thought that it gave you a good sort of representation or a sense of what they do lyrically because there's a level of sort of heartfelt self-deprecation mm -hmm. in their lyrics that is just so compelling to me because, okay, it's a band that 
is serious musically, but they don't take themselves that seriously. Uh, there are a few lines in that first song that uh, in Fail that, believe me, I never wanted to be this way, never wanted to be this fake, never thought that I'd be this age and fail so soon. Uh, you know, it's almost a song about, the way I interpret it is a song about imposter syndrome in a way mm. that I think everyone will go through at some yeah. point in their life. Could be personal, could be professional. And I, I the lyrical part of that hooked me in especially. And then, like you said, there's just so many great lyrical moments. <laughs> First Class, you cover it there. That's just a great tune. That's another standout. And one other tune that I keyed in on because it gave me sort of the uh, sing-along vibe and it just, you can see it live in concert, is all that and more sailboat. My gal is a good one, tails when she's mine. Wish I was better looking, baby, don't mind. My gal is a good one, tails when she's mine. All I ever wanted was to make you happy, give you a true... Mm-hmm. Yeah. One thing you realize when you hear that song is the, the production is already very sparse, which is perfect for these songs, but you could literally peel all the production away on this record. It could just be a guitar or two and the voices, and it would work. Absolutely, it would. Yeah. And that's Absolutely. what I love. That's what I love about this album is that what it shows, there's like there's really well-thought-out, well-crafted construction in the songs. And I also think that we kind of touched on this, but they're incredibly dynamic in their arrangements, they make something that I think is actually very difficult to do seem easy. Which is? Uh, which is to take just a few elements and, you know, make it sound complete. And I think that that speaks to sort of, uh, if you have a great melody and a great lyric, then the production is just there to support that. You don't need to inundate it with a lot of sound. I just think they understand how to create space. Like, we've had this conversation before, too. More... I think when we discuss jazz records, but but in a lot of situations, it even gets me back to the Marion Hill conversation we had with Jeremy, which is, it's not just, the, it's like the Miles Davis thing that he said about, it's not just the notes you play, but it's the notes you don't play. For sometimes sure. Sometimes that make the record or, or the performance great. They seem to understand that in, in a way that's just so impressive to me, because there's not a moment where there's a wasted note on this album. And it, it is, uh, it's something that is amazing to hang on to because so, you know, every, most people start when they start recording, start having to do it sparsely. So recording in a dorm obviously is sparsely, but then, then as you succeed and you grow and you have more opportunities to do other things, like to be able to hold on to what made it special in the first place, right? Like I'm sure they take advantage of being able to record in, uh, in more, you know, in actual recording studios now and, and that sort of thing. But it feels like it keeps the same uh, charm and aesthetic and uh, what made it special in the first place, you know? That's such a great point. That gets me to something else that we've discussed about, we talk about producers like Rick Rubin that aren't really involved in the music directly. Mm -hmm. They're more outside listening. You know, people will pay producers like that just to try to fig help them figure out what is it about this song, this record, what we do, that's special. And this is a band that seems to just understand that without, you know, on their own. They understand it innately. You, you said they captured something early on and they, they stayed tethered to it because there's a temptation 
when you go into a bigger studio sometimes to feel like, well, we got to do something to this song. Mm-hmm. Something more has to happen <laughs> to this song. Yep. And you can lose track very quickly of what made it special if you think that way. Instead of just thinking like, well, what works? This works this way live. People react to it this way. How can we just service the song in that way? It's a... Uh, it's it's a rare ability to just understand that about what you do as a band, as an artist. And I think it's actually is what sets them aside, maybe more than anything else. They're doing a month and a half of European dates in March and April, and that is all sold out uh, through the... Wow. Yeah, it looks like about 15 dates. And then they come to the U.S. They are playing the Stone Pony Summer Stage in June, which is a, a cool venue. And they're playing the Dillon Amphitheater in Colorado two nights in July and then two nights at Red Rocks also wow. in July. So coming back and playing Bonnaroo. So coming back uh, with a bullet for sure. Yeah. And uh, so that's exciting. And in the course of a decade, they built this... Yeah. Dedicated on and and correct me if I'm wrong. All indie releases, right? There's nothing. Yeah. Uh, no, Electra. Second record was Electra. Ah, okay. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. So yeah. they they were co-opted by the uh, yes, yeah, by the label world, which yeah, doesn't always happen. Sure. Does, isn't always necessary in this day and age. I would venture to say their audience would probably be the same. Uh, yeah. I, I like they. I, I don't feel like I don't. I've never heard of them on the radio. You know, like right. uh, <laughs> it, it might just make things a little bit easier for you know. We've we, uh, we don't need to go into the major label thing, but like effectively, a lot of times the lab, labels just act like a, a bank that lends you money. Um, and for people who might not be the, the I would say the the favorable way to look at how a record label operates is this band probably wouldn't be able to get a loan to be able to make this record. And the, the, uh, the record label, if we're looking upon it favorably, gives them the opportunity to do that sort of thing without having to put the money out first, you know, it doesn't mean they have to change anything, honestly. Right. And I think the, because they're a touring band, sometimes a label can just give you tour support. Yep. Uh, financially, which is probably still to this day one of the best things they do for bands that are working. Suddenly, you're not worried about as many of the costs on on tour because the 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 label is covering the shortfall. And also, I think if if you do eventually want to go for radio, because bands like this do cross over to radio. Yep. Sometimes uh, they're the ones that can probably do that for you because you would know this better than me. But I, I I'd say it's difficult to be on commercial radio. Not that there's that many bands that are there anyway, or even need it per se. But it's difficult to be on commercial radio if you don't have if you're not part of that label system. Oh yeah, especially now. I mean, there was a, there was a time when there's just like not that many opportunities now for more than anything. I mean, talk about commercial radio. What are we even? Yeah, what does it pop, even mean? Yeah, anymore? like aside from pop, like there's pop radio, totally whatever, and then there's the few rock bands that get played on current rock radio, rock and alternative radio, like there's just not a lot of opportunity for that to happen. But, um, and because there's so many fewer opportunities, like it just ends up, and there's more bands now, by the way, now than there ever were. There's more music than there ever was. So that sort of competition along with the fewer, um, fewer opportunities is just, yeah. Getting there without a major label is, is sort of tough, you know? Well, this was a great suggestion, man. I'm, I'm trying to plan out when I want to go to Red Rocks this season because I know I want to go again. But I feel like it's got to be. It won't be this. It, I feel like it's, it's got to be, be Mount Joy. Mount Joy the next yeah. time around, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when you saw Amos, that was your first time going. It was. It was, and I made a promise to myself to go every year until uh, until I, I can't afford it anymore or uh, 
where I just get too tired and old. So, so I'm sure one of those, I've got five years left, maybe. That's, that's probably It's basically, I feel like it's a music fan or performer too. It's both rite of passage. Like you kind of, yeah, it's like the Mecca. It's like a musical Mecca you have to go to. If, if you are a music fan and you have not been, I cannot express to you enough that you have to see a show at Red Rocks. And what I would tell you is you can look at the lineup and there's a chance that there's nobody that season that you love. But I would say just go, a, go to see a band that maybe you think is okay. Like it just don't wait for the perfect opportunity because you might not get it. There's a certain kind of band that plays Red Rocks, like the kind of music you like may never get there. Just find a band that you think is like pretty okay that you're familiar with and go because it is different than every other music venue. It is better than every other music venue. It's just, it's just like that. There are other great venues, but nothing is like this. Nothing is like this. Yeah, it's it's completely singular. And I would say it's, it's that way as a fan and as a performer. I, I don't think that's like an across the board agreement. There's some places that maybe musicians love to play, but maybe the fan experience isn't as good. Yeah. Or vice versa. You, you know, maybe the fan experience is incredible, but there's other complications. Red Rocks is like, I think it's a unanimous agreement that there's no other place like it. Yep. Uh, all right. Now it is. So thanks, Nick, for that suggestion. I know you did it a few times and we finally got to it. Uh, now we go to Mootloo's album, which comes from 1998, and it is John Schofield's Ace Agogo. Agogo. A go go, Ace go go. That's what I said, right? Ace-a-go-go? I think it's just. I think it's just a go go. Oh, wait, yeah. I thought you said like it. It it, re, it sounds right when you say it, but I think it's. <laughs> well, I'm like I'm like making like this Ace up. Freely. Wait, are you saying Ace like Ace Freely? Yeah. Oh, it is just a go go. Why did it's I write Ace? Because yeah. you because you're a hair metal guy and yeah. your mind immediately. That's so weird. Absorb is, absorbs it as something that... Ace and Go-Go sounds good. If he ever does a sequel to this, is he still alive? Uh, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, then maybe yeah. he could do Ace and Go-Go as like a sequel to a Go-Go. I think, I think it would be... Or maybe it could be Ace, a Go-Go, Go-Go. There you go. For that add a couple extra third Go-Go's one. to it. The yeah. third one, yeah. <laughs> You weren't familiar with John Schofield before this. The name familiar, but that's where it ends. Now, were you familiar or are you familiar with Modesky Martin and Wood? No. So they're his backing band on this record. Uh, and at the time this came out, late 90s, they were, they still are. They're they're legendary jazz musicians uh, across the board, John Schofield and Modesky Martin and Wood. But they were also very big in the jam scene at the time, so... Uh, so I think it was interesting to see like sort of this jazz great combining with a band that had kind of crossed over from the New York jazz scene mm. into becoming quite popular on like in that jam world. Uh, and they kind of represented that that sort of sound that you hear in the jam world that's more prominent now. But I feel like they were sort of a catalyst for it of, you know, jazz musicians who have like an uh, instrumental groove thing going, but that it, it just still appeals to that audience that you know, that loves Fish and all those kind of bands as well. Huh. And, uh, you know, bands like Soul Live kind of tapped into that uh, at the same time. But this is first and foremost a John Schofield record. 
but it's worth mentioning that Medeski, Martin, and Wood, John Medeski, Chris Wood, and uh, wait, John Medeski, uh, Chris Wood, and Billy Martin uh, are sort of the backing band because it's kind of a collaboration between a prominent set of musicians. Hmm. But just to give a little backdrop on John Schofield, he's born in Ohio, nineteen fifty-one. At a young age, his family moved to Connecticut, and he clearly it was clear that he had a at musical aptitude and ability from a young age, so much so that he ended up attending Berkeley College of Music, uh, which, of course, you it's know, the one. It's the one. Yeah. Only the most talented kids can get into Berkeley. So he went there for a time. He actually ended up leaving school to record with Chet Baker and, and Jerry Mulligan, which is, I mean, for a kid that's just coming right out of Berkeley to mix it up with two legends like that, you know, his his track was set from a young age. After he worked with Chet Baker and Jerry Mulligan, he joined the Billy Cobham, George Duke band. He spent two years playing, recording, and touring with them. Then in 1976, he recorded with Charles Mingus, who's one of the most legendary jazz musicians of all time. So you could see by his early, mid-20s, he was just moving from project to project, at that point primarily as a sideman, you know, absorbing the work of these jazz greats and collaborating with them. He then replaced Pat Metheny and Gary Burton's quartet. Finally, in 1977, he released, he released his first album as a band leader. And that's the thing with a lot of uh, great jazz players is that, like Schofield, who are prolific, that they can have sessions or make records where they're the band leader, they bring maybe their compositions into it, but then they can also pivot and be part of other jazz musicians' work or be part of their groups or work in the studio with them. So he kind of continued that back and forth of being a band leader and a sideman. Now, we discussed Miles Davis kind of blue. I mean, Miles Davis is a titan in the world of jazz music. And so many legends started out or first made their name in Miles Davis' bands. It's like a musical rite of passage in the world of jazz. So 1982, John Schofield joined Miles Davis's group. He stayed with him for three and a half years. He contributed songs and guitar to three of Miles Davis's albums at that time, Star People, Decoy, and You're Under Arrest. So must be fucking awesome to just be like, yeah, I'm in Miles Davis's band. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> is there anything cooler than that? Yeah, uh, you yeah. Know? And this is a guy who had already worked with you know people like Chet Baker and Charles Mingus. I mean, he was, from a young age, he was just in the mix of all yeah. these great musicians. And it's been interesting to see how consistent and prolific he's been right up until... The present day, at the beginning of the 90s, he formed a quartet with Joe Lovano, and they recorded several albums for Blue Note. But it was really in the mid-90s that he started to hone the sound that I think is so present in Agogo. And that's a sound that's more heavily influenced by soul music and funk, and just kind of more about the groove. Uh, you know, not necessarily as much of a traditional jazz sound, but sort of connecting more to a sound that, uh, that to some extent, I think the meters... I always come back to them. They were so pivotal in creating that sort of tight groove funk instrumental unit. You started hearing that kind of sound coming into into uh, John Schofield's work. In 94 and 95, he formed a group with the organist, pianist Larry Goldings, bassist Dennis Irwin, and the drummers Bill Stewart and Idris Muhammad, and they toured extensively, and he kept cultivating that sound, which sort of set the stage for, for this album, Go-Go, which came out in 98 again. Now, this record is... John Schofield on electric and acoustic guitars and whistle, because the whistle comes in at a key moment on one of my favorite songs. John Medeski on organ, Wurlitzer, clavinet, and piano. Chris Wood on acoustic and electric basses. 
and Billy Martin on drums and tambourine. Now, I know Chris Wood because Chris Wood has a group with his brother Oliver called the Wood Brothers. Are you familiar with the, with the no. Wood Brothers? No. Great, great. Well, basically, they're a duo. Now they're a trio, but phenomenal songs. Oliver Wood, Oliver Wood, Chris's brother, is a great songwriter. So is Chris. That's a vocal-driven project. If anything, the Wood Brothers have probably uh, toured more extensively in recent years than Modesky Martin and Wood did. But I met them because at the time I was on Manhattan Records, they were signed to Blue Note, so it was part of the same Blue Note label group. I did a few shows with them back in the day. Got it. And uh, when you watch Chris Wood play, and I was already familiar with Modesky Martin, I mean, he's just one of the most extraordinary musicians I've ever seen, like worked with or seen live, just incredible. And that's that's the case for all four musicians that are on this record. So give it a little back, you know, give it a few highlights, I should say, on this album. The opening track, the title track, A Go-Go. Asagogo, although I as, like Asagogo, aka Asagogo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As, as the real ones know it as the real ones know a a gogo, but but a gogo. What's well, yeah? It's weird to say a gogo. Yeah. And then if I say the a first, then I want to say the a twice. A yeah. a gogo. Yeah, I would just say a gogo. Right, right, yeah. right. Yeah. But the real ones know, like you said, it's Asagogo. Yep. Uh, <laughs> that <laughs> that track. Uh, I, I don't know why I just thought of that. There was one episode uh, like where we were we were talking about, who was it? There's a Swedish band. And, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. You completely derailed yeah, the yeah. entire episode with, uh, I, I, I almost felt my mind like derailing for a second. On, to on that. This rip. Yeah, that, that, yeah. Was, that was a true meltdown. That was, that was an early, true. early that was, on. Yeah. Go back and meltdown. listen. I forget it was early on. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we've had a couple of those, I feel like. Uh, but anyway, I'm not, I'm not going to allow that to happen here. It's a go go, aka Ace a go go. Okay, yes, moving on. Ace a go go. Ace a go go. Right. So, <laughs> so I think that track, that lead track, sets the tone for the whole album. Ten tracks. Uh, it sort of gives you the core DNA of what this music is. You have Modesky Martin and Wood laying down the groove. Perfect backdrop for Schofield's guitar melodies. And one thing I'll say about this record is that it's not just jams. It's not. It's not just players coming in a room and riffing. These are well-constructed compositions. And if you listen to this record enough, you'll find these melodies stuck in your head. I mean, they're mm. written as songs. You have the kind of core melody that Schofield presents at the beginning, he, and it kind of goes back and forth between that A section with that melody and the B section, which is kind of like a bridge, I guess. And then throughout the song, you hear them kind of pivoting between those two sections, more or less, but kind of building the ideas based off that. You get this really bluesy soloing from John Schofield. If you know his sound, he's unmistakable, which I think is quite unique because there are a lot of great jazz and blues musicians who can play a million notes, who have all the chops, who can even even play with a lot of feel and emotion. But it's rare that you can say, like, I hear this guy and I know it's him. No, it's him, yeah. And John Schofield is one of those guys that there's something about... It's a combination of things. It's it, He puts a little bit of distortion on it. At times, it sounds like there's a chorus effect where his guitar can almost sound like a keyboard. But more than that, it's his phrasing, and I think it's literally the way he just plays, the way he sort of attacks the notes. He has these kind of short melodic phrases, and you kind of hear him 
kind of just dialed into that approach throughout the album. Then at a point, he steps back and lets uh, John Modeski kind of take the lead on the organ. And the way they exchange ideas and the way they alternate between solos is just so satisfying to me. They, it, they, It's a great tandem, the two of them, as far as soloists. Another song, I'll highlight a couple of the songs because I think that song represents most of the record. But mm-hmm. there are a few moments that where it goes into a little bit of a different direction. Jeep on 35. Midway through is a nice change up. Midway through the record, you have this kind of acoustic groove. Another great melody that's played on the whistle. That's why I felt like I needed to mention the whistle <laughs> at the beginning. <laughs> and I think of a song like that, it could easily be confer- converted into a vocal melody with lyrics. Uh, it's that memorable to me. I think that happens a few times on the album. I, like I have a, a couple of one specifically, but I, I think that there's a the, the the most interesting thing about this album is just. I'm sort of fascinated on how, and this is for jazz guitar in general, but specifically this album, how you can make it sound like, like I'm, I'm curious about the writing process of how you can make it sort of sound like a jam and you guys are all just sort of like figuring it out as you go along. But also the songs have a beginning, middle and end right. and, and a structure to it, but it's not like in your face. It doesn't sound like an instrumental version of a vocal song. That's not what I'm saying. Um, like a, of a standardly written song with a verse and a chorus, and a, but it does sound like there is an, an arc to each song. And also at the same time, it just sounds like they're fuck they're, they're like, they're jamming a little bit. It's a, it's all, it's all very interesting to try to figure out to me. And what you just got into there is what I love about it because I've heard, you know, I've seen live performances or records where it is just kind of riffing and jamming mm-hmm. and people are figuring it out. And that that can have its own appeal. But, you know, this record is 10 tracks. Most songs run four or five minutes. You're right. There's an arc to every composition arrangement. And I think when you listen enough times, even when they're soloing, they're never too far removed from what those core melodic ideas are. They're just sort of variations. Yeah melodic and harmonic variations of those core ideas and it's kind of you know where it's going to land mm-hmm. like you said it's always stated again in, the, in some shape or form in the middle and then in the end so which is i think speaks to also john schofield's you know compositional uh, abilities and one other track i'll mention is kubrick that comes i think uh, also yeah. about midway through That was one of the ones that I mentioned. I was curious whether they wrote this spooky, weird song and said, it sounds like Stanley Kubrick, or <laughs> if they're like, we want to write a song about Stanley Kubrick, let's make it sound this way. I'm curious which which way it started. That, you know, that's tough to say. I mean, yeah. I, I would think because there was probably a compositional mind frame coming mm-hmm. into this, I think it's the... Uh, I think it's the first thing, like mm-hmm. we, you know, I because I, I think Schofield wrote these songs on his own and then brought it into Modesky, Martin Wood. But like he had the thought maybe that let me write something that channels Stanley Kubrick, and it it's only like a little over two minutes, but it does that. Mm-hmm. It feels like it could be a tense moment in a Stanley Kubrick film, absolutely, and in a weird, confusing moment where you're totally freaked out and 
this is the music uh, that's presented there. Just to I, sum it up, and I'm curious about some of your thoughts on all this, but uh, I, I think when you, the best part of jazz for me, I'm curious if this kind of, if you perceived the record in this way at all, if you thought about it this way. The best part of jazz to me is that it's like a conversation in some ways between musicians. And like these are four virtuosos right here. But what's even more important about how they play together is how they listen to one another. And that's what I think is great about jazz, when you can find that sweet spot of, yeah, this is a composition. We're going to respect the composition, the melody. There's a construction to it. And then then within that, we're going to have a conversation. And I think that is what makes this kind of record special to me, this one in particular. Uh, they've done some other collaborations together, uh, these four musicians. But I've, ne- I mean, and I've enjoyed those. But this to me is a standout. When you go to John Schofield's page, these are some still some of his most popular tracks. So, uh, I was curious if I know you're not like a jazz guy, but does that, uh, if there's some appeal to this, is that ever kind of occur to you that it, that's what makes it kind of gel? That's what makes it click. Yeah, I mean, I think it is music for musicians on some level. Like, I I do think that there is, (laughs) this is one of my weird theories I don't even, like, expressed vocally before, but, like, the people who aren't musicians who claim to like this. You're not buying it? Not really. I, I, (laughs) I, I, I suppose there are people in every, like, field of art who are interested in how the art is made and aren't artists, right? Like, I think there are some people who are interested in how a director directs a film and have no designs on being a director, right? I think it's it's possible, but it just seems unlikely to me. But from a, mu- and I am not a musician, but I at least have a working knowledge in general of how music works. I think it is interesting. Like I think, like, I think an album like this, uh, is almost, and this sort of music is all more, almost like more interesting than it is enjoyable to me. It's not that I don't enjoy it. I'm just, I listen to it in a different way than I would listening to other music. Like I, I come out out of it, like appreciating different things than I would if I'm just putting something on to enjoy it. Uh, there's little chance I would just like throw this on and, and just listen to it. But I, I do think it's fun how like when you put music on like this, you feel like you're in swingers, uh, which every time I'm like, I feel like I'm in swingers. Are you the, Vince Vaughn or are you, uh, or no. are you John Favreau? No, I'm definitely John Favreau. I'm definitely yeah. the one. Leaving. I'm a Favreau guy too. I like yeah. Vince Vaughn, but, uh, yeah, Favreau I mean, Vince Vaughn is, is great, but I'm, I'm the guy who's leaving the 27 voicemails. Uh, <laughs> oh, not, have you, not the that's cool the part guy. that you relate to, right? Yeah. There. <laughs> yeah. I'm not the cool guy. I thought, so I, the, the two songs that I, that were most notable to me, one of them is Kubrick, but the other one is, is Boozer. The thing that I thought was the most cool about this song is it does, without any words, seem like it is telling a story. And uh, it does seem like you could imagine a mini film set to this song 
that would have a beginning, middle and end and tell a story. And it is in this song specifically, you talk about the instruments talking to each other and, and that sort of thing. It is in this song that for me, it stuck out the most that that is what they were doing. That, they, that, that there was a, a specific point to it. And, some, and I couldn't vocalize what that story is, but it does seem like there is one there. See, I love that because that makes me realize that we've now gone through enough of these records where you can key in on a song and, and it elicits something like that. Because a lot yeah. of times we talk about that with lyrics. Yes. Lyrics are, do that more than anything, and obviously, because they, yeah. lyrics can really tell you a story. But the fact that there's a song that you can hear on this record that actually could also give you a visual. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm curious if you did you think through like what that short film would be? It'd probably be four or five minute short film, which there are short films that are that run that long. Yeah, and m- maybe it's just because of what the title was that it led me to this place. But it sort of felt like like downtrodden alcoholic guy who is like not quite lost everything, but like feels it slipping away, you he's, know? He's and, hanging on by a thread. Right. He's, he's at the end, like, yeah. Yeah, like he's his about daughter, to spiral all the his way daughter won't talk to him anymore because he's he's missed like the, the, he's missed so many birthday parties and so many times that he said he would show up and he didn't. He still has his job, but he hates it anyway. He like, he hasn't shaved in three days and he is not like a full on, disaster alcoholic, but is like this version of functional alcoholic that makes it feel so pathetic. Like it, it is that, that is like the, the visual that I, and, and I don't know where the story ends and where it begins, but that, and maybe again, maybe it's the title, but that is what I took from it. That's one of my favorites on here and you can see it. You can visualize Mm -hmm. it. Uh, Let's put it in the world. John Schofield, Nesky Martin Wood, like I just put in the world, maybe it'll happen one day or maybe you'll be able to. Have you ever tried doing like any kind of filmmaking uh, kind of? Oh thing? me, no. Yeah, no. Uh, well, I was not film. The only film that I was ever involved in was the Santa Claus documentary um, that I have a uh, uh, a producer credit on. That I do feel like I earned that producer credit. Um, Santa Claus documentary? What? Oh, I've I've never so. There's a, a film and it is, I don't think it's on Netflix anymore, but, um, but it's everywhere else that you can buy movies. It is a, a documentary about four, four, I think, real bearded Santas and what their life is like outside of Christmas season. So when I say real bearded Santas, I mean the ones that sit in stores, but are not, don't have fake beards. Like the ones that look like Santa Claus. Oh, they're actually like in real life. They look like, Santa. look like Santa Claus the rest wow. of the year. And my friend, Tommy, who has now made several documentaries, but used to be our video guy at WYSP came into my office one day and he had made like some uh, scripted movies. He came into my office one day and he was like, Hey, I was in the mall and I saw Santa. I had this idea. Would this be a good idea? And I was like, that is a good idea. And, um, you know, we did a lot of like phone interviews. And what's interesting is he ended up talking, we ended up getting Mick Foley to do an interview because Mick Foley loves uh, Christmas. And Mick (laughs) Foley liked it so much, he became executive producer of the movie. So I like during the process of making this documentary, I got to go to Pierre's, the costume store in Old City, Philly with Mick Foley and his kids as he got fitted for his Santa costume that he would own. Um, wow. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a uh, it's a fun movie. Like, is there's it a, a long long form or is it a short? Yeah, it's ninety minute, ninety eighty ninety minute movie. It's uh, there's like a there's a, a Santa that's a real estate agent. There's a Santa that like is like this, uh, and I think uh, I think he just passed away. A Santa that is like from the Midwest and is like a hoarder, and then there's a a, a gay Santa um from texas and it is all very it is a great tommy did a great job on it he's he has progressed since then and makes um makes even bigger documentaries now but that was his first one what was the like how did you guys key in on those four individuals well we did a bunch of phone interviews um with santa's and then tommy got accepted like tommy became part of the santa community and uh, there is an online Santa community. So ended up finding out Santas through finding other Santas. The only on-camera interview I did, I did our first one with like one of the more professional, well-known Santas that's in a lot of commercials that you've seen that we did in a diner in New York once. But um, yeah, so I, I ended up, you know, I would say 30% or 40% through the process bowing out of it. Um, but, but I still have a producer credit on it, which I'm very proud of. Wow. Yeah. Now I'm wondering what does the Santa community think of Bad Santa, the film starring Billy Bob Thornton? Oh, I'm sure there's a, I'm sure there's a lot of opinions on it. Have you seen that film? Uh, Bad Santa. Yeah, of course. Yeah. It's a a classic, right? I mean. Yeah. Um, Tommy actually just made a series on Peacock called I Love You, You Hate Me, which is about Barney and the online like backlash to Barney and like the people who ended up hating Barney or whatever. And it's on, it's on Peacock. I have not, I don't have Peacock, so I haven't seen it yet, but he's, he's made a bunch of, his name is Tommy Avalone, uh, A-V-A-L-L-O-N-E. So you can look up Tommy. Have you ever seen the video of Barney doing a big papa? No. It's it's on you can I think yeah it's, I think it's that tune it's that notorious B.I.G. Biggie Smalls yeah. song and it's like the song but it's like Barney as as, as Big Papa oh my God that's and amazing. it's set to that I think yeah. uh, I, I, it's pretty amazing it's pretty amazing uh, well that was a that was a that was a uh, quite a tangent a, quite a tangent so <laughs> well it, this was a a cool album I thought. And I think just, I, I think the way that you describe it is exactly how you hear it. And I think my, my advice would be to anyone who isn't into this sort of album is hearing you talk about it and sort of understand what you're listening for makes it more interesting and better to listen to, to somebody that might just hear it and say, oh, that sounds nice or whatever, background music. But I think hearing you describe what they're doing and why it's interesting, I think would make it more interesting to somebody else. It does for me. Yeah, and I think for, I know we have a lot of musicians who who listen. Yeah. Uh, so I think, like you said, it, it is maybe more of a musician's album, but I do think even for folks who don't like jazz as much, uh, I understand there's like some more like bebop traditional styles of jazz that might be difficult for some people to absorb or that it just doesn't relate to them. But this is like, this is about the groove. I mean, yeah, it's, it's a jazz record, but I think if you, if you like soul music and funk, I think there's something in this that might actually connect. I'm just like, it disappoints me that jazz kind of, is treated as like sort of an antiquated art form by the mainstream in some ways. And uh, it made me think that like, if you took some of these songs and created a visual counterpart to them, I wonder if some younger kids who don't care about jazz or don't know anything about it would maybe relate to it more. It it kind of... uh, 
Well, it wouldn't be the first time that a video made somebody like music, you know, or at least not made them like it, but make, make you pay attention. You know, yeah. it, it gives it gives it some context, I think. And I, I think I think that would give it context. Right. Like, I think if you told visual stories with these songs, I think I think that would be a cool project for someone to do. Yeah. And then by default, you're absorbing the track. I mean, we, we mm-hmm. talked about that with Guru. We heard you yeah. know, Tribe Called Quest. All these groups were trying to do that, trying to introduce younger audience, audiences to jazz through hip hop. So uh, it just it's. It's such an important musical art form that I think is sort of just way on the periphery of the mainstream now. It wasn't yeah. always that way, but uh, but there's just a lot to absorb out there. I think this one is more digestible maybe than than so, some other records that are more challenging. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so, especially because it the songs are more compact and and like you said, there is a there's an arc to each song, even if it's not the familiar thing that you're used to listening to in a song. So good album choices if again if you have a suggestion do it in spotify right under the pod where it says to do it do it in the apple podcast reviews or do it at carlandryrecordclub.com until next time that's all we got stay free my goose